Welcome to the Financial Philosophers Podcast, where we explore the nuances of personal finance, improve our financial literacy, and empower ourselves to achieve financial freedom. Come nerd out with us, and let's take this journey together. Welcome back, everyone, to the Financial Philosophers Podcast. Danny, good to see you. Yeah, you as well, Chris. And uh, Danny, we're doing uh, High Yield Options for Your Cash Part 2. Part 2. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, to our listeners, if you missed Part 1 last week, definitely go listen to that first. It kind of sets the groundwork. I think that's a better episode to start with before jumping into this one uh, for some more context. But to reiterate some quick things, uh, because we're in a higher rate environment, and since inflation has been on people's minds, uh, a lot of people have cash sitting around and are asking the question, you know, wh- where should I be storing this to to get more yield, if you will? And if you're not asking that question, perhaps you should be, uh, because we are in an environment now where there are better options out there than your traditional uh, brick and mortar bank account that may only be yielding you zero point something percent, right? So um, last week we talked about high yield savings, CDs, and money market accounts. And today we're going to talk about treasuries, specifically T-bills, I-bonds, and MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities, and and another concept at the end, too, we'll touch base on. So that sounds good. Uh, Before we move forward, I wanted to jump back to just to reiterate the high-yield aspect of of keeping cash and to impress upon everyone, if you aren't already, make that move. Uh, This example that I have, um, we have a high-yield account. And in that account, in our high yield savings account, we earn more money in a single month than we did in 10 years, in the entirety of 10 years at the standard bank brick and mortar savings account. Get your emergency fund moved to a high yield account, people. (laughs) Wow. That's, um, do you know what your interest rate was on the old school bank account you had? Uh, I think that at one point it was literally 0.01 percent oh my god wow that's uh well if that was the case then the 10 years makes total sense yeah. uh literally get it total sense um yeah because that's what we received during yeah, those 10 years that, that was, i was very <laughs> proud of that pun dual purpose word anyway um so yeah let's let's dive in so last week part one danny i i think you'd agree since we talked about this i think there was more focus on a short-term horizon. We were re- referencing, Definitely. you know, high yield savings and CDs and money markets as a uh, good emergency fund or maybe a good short-term space yes. to park cash. I-, I still think that should be some of the focus today for uh, for us and our listeners. But some of these options we're going to talk about um, do extend kind of longer term if you will in some ways okay. compared to the prior options we talked about in part one so 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 these options can be both short term and you can stretch them further into to the future if you choose to do so yeah it's stretching this concept a little bit but i, I think we I just wanted to round out some more options because you know I, I would say today's episode we're getting into slightly more sophisticated high yield options that they have a little bit more nuance uh, that we have to uncover Okay. Uh, not as cut and dry as a savings account, for example, but they might have better better benefits. I so. think one thing that we can kind of focus on, you're right, we are talking about short term, like in terms of your short short term allocation of capital. 
And one of the main things about all of these that we're talking about is the preservation of capital, right? You're not expecting to see the overall growth that you, you would see in the broad stock market, but you're also, you are expecting to kind of avoid that volatility that comes by being in the stock market. So for the short term, uh, even if some of these might not return as high, you are looking to avoid that volatility and make sure that capital is preserved. So it's there when you need it. That's a really great call out because notice we're not talking about individual, uh, sorry, not individual. We're not talking about bond funds, for example, like Correct. a bond mutual fund. A lot of people view that as like a cash equivalent, right? It is a, it's a debt instrument after all, but a bond mutual fund or ETF can fluctuate in value. In fact, it did sharply when interest rates rose so quickly. Um, a lot of people saw their capital uh, drop tremendously because of that. And so th their original value uh, was not preserved. So again, reiterating your point, that's a great point, Danny. These are options where you are looking at principal protection here. You're looking at something that's not going to see your principal drop in value. So with that said, um, let's dive in and go through some of these. So the first one I want to talk about was treasuries, uh, specifically T-bills. You're going to hear people use the word treasuries a lot, um, T, but that could refer to T-bills, T-notes, and T-bonds. Um, T-bills are generally, you know, a month to 12 months in duration. Uh, T-notes are, I think, two to 10 years. And then I think T-bonds are, are much longer duration than that, beyond 10 years. 30 years. Um, yeah. yeah, 20, 30 years. So again, uh, same as last week, these are numbers as of the time of this recording and we're in early december of 2023 now rates can change so take the numbers we throw out today with a big grain of salt that said the point in talking about these options is to give you more tools in your tool belt to consider for your cash that you want to put somewhere so with treasuries for the t-bills we're talking you know one to six month range as of this recording, I've been seeing them around 5.3%, right? Which is a bit higher than high yield savings and uh, even higher or at least competitive with CDs of, of equal duration. So now that's a 5.3% annualized. It doesn't correct. mean if you buy a six month T bill that you're going to return 5.3%, correct? <laughs> correct. That okay. is a, okay. that's a great call out. Yes. You're, you're only getting uh, five. It, it's like saying you would get 5.3% if you had held on to it for 12 months, but in fact, you're only going to get half of 5.3% if it's a six-month um, duration. Yeah. So good call out. So some of the pros and cons. For the pros, treasuries, the T-bills have decent liquidity, right? Especially if you're choosing something on the shorter end of the curve, one couple months or so, even six months is not too bad. Uh, yeah, you have to tie it up for that time, but that can go by pretty quickly. I could even see people using, you know, one to three months as an easy place for an emergency fund. They keep a little bit of cash to cover a month or two in their bank account and the rest goes into three month T-bills or two that's month T-bills. That's, that's an option. They are safe, right? They're backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. In theory, they're safer than uh, banks and FDIC insurance, um, maybe slightly higher yield than some of those options. And another pro is you only have to pay Fed taxes on them, federal taxes. Uh, there's no state income tax on treasuries, generally speaking. Yeah, great consideration for those listeners that are living in incredibly high tax states. Right. Let, let's give you an example, right? So if you're, if you're looking at a 5.3% T-bill 
and you are in a state that your income tax rate at the state level is 5%, uh, you would have to earn 5.57% roughly, approximately, if you will, um, uh, and as opposed to 5.3% to get the tax equivalent yield. So you'd have to, to account for the state taxes you'd owe on that interest, you have to earn about 25 to 27 bips, basis points higher. Uh, basis point means uh, percentage, so 0.25% higher, if you will. Uh, and then in a higher state tax, I say, I don't know, California, uh, say somebody's in the around 9% tax level, uh, you'd have to earn 5.82%, so about 0.42% higher, sorry, 0.52% higher than uh, if you just simply had a T-bill that's only taxed at the federal level. So tax equivalent yield is something to be mindful of when you're looking at these. It's something to consider. Uh, but there are some cons to them too. Danny, have you ever logged into treasurydirect.gov? Or I sure have. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> I tried to, to log in when treasuries were, oh, they were nearing, what was it, like 9.87%, nearly 10% yield uh, during the height of inflation. And as, uh, as that deadline, right, for the rate transition, that rate uh, changed because the, uh, the rate does change on I-bonds, right, every two, every six months, like twice a year. Yeah. Um, near the end of that, when the rate was going to be updated, their site was just down. It wasn't functioning. <laughs> that is hilarious. The same thing happened to me. I was actually trying to help a family member. Um, they wanted to put some money into an I-bond. It, it was 9.62% uh, was the rate, I believe. And we were trying to get in, and the website, first of all, it looks like it's from the 90s. Like, it, it looked totally outdated. Uh, it very well, maybe. I, I think they've revamped it since then, but, and, and it did not work. We could not even get into the system and purchase the bond in time. So uh, this is tying into one of the cons, which is purchasing treasuries can be a little more cumbersome. It's not as simple. It's not overly complex or difficult. Anybody can do it. You can, you can search a YouTube video how to buy treasuries on the, yeah. <laughs> you'll find a million videos. We'll just admittedly say that it's not going to be as simple as someone that jumps into Robinhood on their phone and swipes right to buy something. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, that's the one thing to be mindful of. And also rates can change, right? When you're talking about T-bills in the one to six month range, I mean, those if interest rates go down, then you're going to likely see rates fall as well. So that's that's one of the cons to be aware of. You know what? Zooming out for a minute, I should have said this at the beginning. We're going to talk about pros and cons with these options, but one con in general, or two actually, that apply to all of these are interest rate risk and reinvestment rate risk. So no matter what option you choose, if you're choosing something short-term, that you only have to wait a couple months or even something longer term where you're locking up money for a few years, interest rate risk and reinvestment rate risk exist on both of those options, right? Interest rate risk is that rates could go up or down and it ties into reinvestment rate risk as well, where you perhaps buy something longer term and then rates go up and then you go, oh darn, I locked up my money for a longer period of time and if I had kept it shorter term, I could have then jumped into these higher yielding options that are now available and the all the opposite is also true right you might be in something short term because you're afraid of rates going up but then rates actually fall and then you're regretting not buying something longer and locking in a higher rate correct because you have to buy in at the new lower rate when your money is freed up at the end of that term correct and so 
I don't have a great answer for that conundrum, right? I, I think this just goes back to old advice, which is diversification, right? If you are uncertain, then having a mixture of both is something to consider, right? And uh, also, what is the purpose of the money? I mean, Danny, you were talking about last week, if it's an emergency fund, then maybe you shouldn't care as much about interest rates and where you think they're going to go because you're going to need that money to be liquid, right? But if you have an upcoming goal or an expense that you need to fund uh, in a in a determined, predetermined amount of time, a year, two, three, five years, well, then you could just buy something that matches that time horizon and call it a day, right? And it's, it's predictable and planable. And if rates go up and you miss out on higher yield, then so be it. But you can't say that you weren't being logical or prudent with your decision in that. So I just wanted to shout that out. Anyway, so moving back to treasuries, the taxes, we talked about this last week. So you pay at maturity and you are issued usually a form 1099-INT. And I do know you can also buy treasuries through brokerage accounts. Like I know Vanguard, for example, you can. Um, and I don't know if they issue a 1099-INT or a 1099-DIV coming from a brokerage account. I think it's a 1099-INT, but... I would think so as well. Yeah, I, just don't quote me on that. You're going to get a form 1099 wherever you you buy treasuries for, from and whenever they pay at maturity. But yes, uh, moving on. So another thing to be mindful of these, this is another part of the cumbersome, is that they're auctioned usually weekly or, or depending on the, the duration you're choosing. And you can put in something called a competitive or non-competitive bid. Uh, a non-competitive bid, okay. from my understanding, is what most people do. You just submit at market order, whatever it's paying at. You roughly get whatever the market order bid is at that sure. time. And that's kind so. of what I think the average buy and hold investor in the stock market does as well. You yeah. just buy at market, right? If you're okay with the price, you just click buy and yep. whoever's selling at that rate, that's what you will purchase it for. Right. Again, if you're if this if this is news to you or confusing, you can Google or, or search on YouTube. There are a lot of people who show tutorials on how to purchase treasuries if that's something that's interesting. Next one is I bonds. So, Danny, you just mentioned the uh, record breaking nine point six two percent and uh, crashing website. An I bond basically issued in the same way. Like you actually go to Treasury Direct to buy an I bond as well, the same place where you would get T bills. But the I-bonds are a little bit different and they're tricky, right? So they are inflation-protected securities. So there's there's a weird rate that happens. It's called the composite rate. And I just Googled it before we started recording. And right now it's, I believe, 5.27% from now through the end of April if you purchase okay. it within that window. That's the rate. Now that rate is actually made up of two things. One is a fixed rate and one is a semi-annual inflation rate. The fixed rate is 1.3%. And if you buy a bond during this window, you're going to have that fixed rate for that specific bond you buy for the life of the bond. That fixed rate's never going to change. It's always going to be 1.3%. But then this other part portion of the, the rate fluctuates, like you mentioned earlier, Danny. Every six months, it changes. Right now, the semi-annual inflation rate is 1.97%, but that's for six months. You know, it's like, they couldn't make it any more confusing. The fixed rate yeah. is an annual stated number, but the semi-annual inflation rate, 1.97%, is actually a six-month number, meaning you actually do earn 1.97% just for holding it six months. You don't have to hold it a year to earn sure. that. If anyone um, is confused listening to this, you may want to, again, go on uh, online and just look up a little diagram, and that may help you uh, understand this a, a bit better. Right. Uh, being a bond, I-bonds, I believe, 
uh, they mature after 30 years, correct? That's the year at which they uh, stop earning interest. They've hit their maturity. Correct. I believe that's true. Okay. Um, but you can you can withdraw it after one year has passed. Correct. So you do have to hold it a minimum of one year. This is one of the cons to it. Uh, and if you surrender it between years one and five, there's also a three-month interest penalty. The last three months of interest is is taken out as a penalty. If you make it to beyond year five, you're in the clear. You can sur- you can surrender it, take your cash and the interest earned, and there's no penalty. Potentially lower yield, right? Because th- that's the thing about the inflation protection. You buy it for that inflation protection. It's this hedge against if inflation goes up, I'm going to be glad I have this I-bond because that semi-annual inflation rate, that other part of the composite rate, will adjust upward and be to, to your benefit but if rates fall then may, maybe that goes down and you don't earn as attractive of a rate i will say it's kind of nice having that fixed rate right now of 1.3 percent danny when that 9.62 percent i bond you mentioned i think that was back in may of 2022 it had a fixed rate of zero percent so that anybody ridiculous. anybody that bought those bonds that 9.62 percent was entirely driven by the semi-annual inflation rate part there was a 0% fixed rate, and that's for the entire life of the bond, right? So those bonds that people purchased at 9.62% are now earning 1.97% for the semi-annual inflation rate and zero for the fixed rate because my, those bonds had a zero fixed rate. My guess is that uh, anyone who has been paying attention to these things has most likely, if they were proactive, has rolled that capital into something else. <laughs> Maybe. You know, it's interesting you say that. I don't want to take us on too far of a tangent on I-bonds. I, I did but... say anyone who's paying attention and staying on top of these things. Fair. <laughs> but th- this is an interesting point. I was actually helping people put money in the 9.62% I-bond. And even if they surrendered it after the year mark and paid, let's say they surrendered it at like the 15-month mark, right? And they paid the last three months of interest they still ended up better than other options on the table at that time because nothing was coming close. Even accounting for the penalty, it was better. So it was an interesting planning scenario for a lot of people at that time. So I certainly don't fault anybody who bought 9.62% yielding I-bonds at that time. So it'd be interesting to see where they go from here. I did want to mention a couple more pros to this, Danny. We mentioned the inflation protection. Same with the the T-bills. It's federal taxes only. But there's actually tax flexibility too. You can actually pay the taxes as you go each year if you prefer, or you can defer it all and just pay it whenever it matures or when you surrender it. Most people choose to defer it, um, but it just depends on your situation. There's one last thing. If you buy an I-bond, depending on your modified adjusted gross income, as well as if whether you're meeting specific age and ownership requirements, you can use I-bonds to pay for qualified higher education expenses on a tax-free basis. So rather than paying taxes on the interest, you could just use it to pay for qualified higher education expenses. But you do have to meet very strict requirements for that. So okay, won't be able to cover that in today's episode, but um, people can definitely Google that. Similar to the way that you so. use funds from a 529 account to fund education. Can mm-hmm. you purchase I-bonds? No, you can't purchase I-bonds within a 529 account. Or no. A, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there it's kind of its own separate way of funding education expenses. Yep. It just without it, the volatility of the market. Right, right. You know, I think part of it was that a lot of people will buy I bonds uh, you know when they're 
children are born or something like that, but it'll be in the parent's name. And that this, I don't remember off the top of my head that that's where the ownership requirement comes in. I know it has to be in the parent's name. And I think you have to have been at least 24 years old by the time you're purchasing it or else you can't use it for qualified higher education expenses. There's some really nuanced rules there, but uh, I think it just gives people a way to have more flexibility to use those bonds for other purposes and get a little bit of a tax break on it. So kind of a neat little um, very interesting pro. Yep. So yeah, onto the third one, multi-year guaranteed annuities, MIGAs. So this is getting into some longer duration stuff, Danny. There's not really many MIGAs that are, I mean, there are some on the shorter end of the curve duration-wise, but where I really see a lot of people picking these things up are at the three-year, five-year, seven-year duration. And you can even go beyond that. So at the time of this recording, I've been seeing them 6% or even higher in terms of the interest yield on that, which is really attractive. Um, These are insurance products. So they're offered by insurance companies. Uh, Some of the pros, they are safe, right? They're contractually guaranteed. They don't have FDIC insurance and they don't have, you know, the full faith and credit of the U.S., but they do have protection generally in every state. You have to check your state to see what the protection levels are. But it's by the State Guarantee Association. Uh, Danny, I actually looked up your state in Nevada. And it's uh, $250,000 protected per owner, per member company. So I think Interesting. If, you go, if you have multiple holdings at different insurance companies, I think that's how you get multiple $250,000. That's just like 000. having a bank account. It's similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's the insurance yep. twist, if you will, or flavor. So yeah, so pros are safe and there's optionality too, right? A lot of these contracts, you have multiple durations you can choose. Uh, they are tax deferred, which is nice. You don't have to pay interest as you go, like you would with a high yield savings or a CD. Um, and when, even when it matures, if you don't want to pay the taxes at that time, you could do something called a 1035 exchange where you can just exchange it into another annuity, perhaps another MIGA okay. right after that. And you don't have to pay any of those taxes. You could just keep deferring it um, nice. in that method as well. So uh, kind of nice to have that. So I'm hesitant to call this a pro because one of the cons is the lack of liquidity because you are tying up money in these and they even have okay. surrender schedules. Like if you surrender, there might be a penalty. But a lot of these products, depending on the carrier, will allow some flexibility for you to access your funds some sometimes between five and ten percent of the value in any given year okay which is not so bad right if you put in a hundred thousand into one of these being able to access you know about ten thousand each year if needed is not a bad um, feature to have sure so i could i could see if someone wants to buy a home in four to five years you know maybe they're opting for these three-year migas and uh locking in you know that that percentage yield and mm-hmm. that optionality. Um, obviously not something that you want to use for an emergency fund. If it has no. to be locked up for three, five, seven years, no. that would be a very bad idea. Um, but uh, that's interesting to uh, to learn about. Yeah, I think one of the downsides is you do, you do have to go through an application process, right? It, okay. Usually getting in contact with an insurance carrier or an agent and going through that. Um, again, we say this a lot. Danny and I are not insurance agents. Uh, we have no connection to any insurance products. Um, but we, we don't want to ignore these products because these are viable options for some people to consider, um, even though we're not insurance people. So one thing I will say though, to your point about buying a house, that could be a legitimate strategy. Here's the biggest con in my opinion. I guess it depends on who you are. There's a 10% early withdrawal penalty if you withdraw the money prior to the age of 59 and a half. 
Okay. So that's why you can do that tax deferral because it's treated the same way as a standard retirement account penalty if you withdraw before that age. Yeah, it's kind of like the IRA early withdrawal penalty, if you will, in many ways. So, you know, for folks who are maybe in their early mid 50s and they're looking for something to defer for five, seven years, that could be a legitimate option to consider. I mean, you can, in theory, purchase it younger than that. I I'm hesitant to recommend anyone even consider that because you're really subjecting yourself to this potential penalty issue and locking up funds for a long time. You just have to be mindful of that. It's it's not the right fit for everybody. Uh, I, yeah, de- I'm, I definitely see this more in the people in the, the 50 and 60 year age crowd. I'm going to walk back what I said previously about using it to save for a home um, because I'm not very familiar with MIGAs and I did not realize it had that 10% early withdrawal fee. <laughs> hey, I mean, there are some people in their 50s and 60s who are saving up for a new home, right? That's I mean, true. Could be a legit strategy that way. So now, unlike T-bills and I-bonds, these you do pay federal and state taxes on. Uh, so you have to pay taxes on both sides. And you generally get a 1099-R, which reports the, uh, the amount of income you have to pay taxes on. Quick question. Given that they yeah. are tax deferred, am I right in suspecting that the taxes that you pay out of these are paid at normal ordinary income rates rather than capital gains rates excellent question yes yeah and on the topic of annuities uh, a lot of these you can buy annuities within retirement accounts you could have an annuity a miga if you will inside of an ira Um, you can also buy them outside of retirement accounts and if that's the case they're considered a non-qualified annuity because money inside of retirement accounts are considered qualified monies so if it's a non-qualified annuity a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, well, that's similar to like a brokerage account, right? So some annuities, we're not going to go into this today, but some have, there are some products out there that have like a market-like type of component to it where you can have underlying holdings. And a lot of people think, well, if there are capital gains, then I pay capital gains tax on that. Not the case with an annuity. It's always going to be ordinary income tax. And one other downside to be mindful of is Unlike a non-qualified brokerage account, whereas if you were to buy stocks today and they grow you know, four times in value by the time you die and those go to your heirs at your death, they would get something called a step-up in cost basis. It would be like they bought the stocks the same day that you died. They could turn around and sell it the same day and pay zero capital gains tax on it. With an annuity, even if it's non-qualified, even though you have a cost basis, your heirs do not receive a step-up in cost basis from an annuity at your death. So there is no step up in cost basis feature. So there's that little bit of a tax um, s- strategy that you miss out on regarding okay. probably more than, than we need to dive into today, but thought I'd mention it. So um, honorable mention, I have one for us, Danny. Strategic debt. Hmm, okay. Can you, t- can you take a guess where I'm going with this? It's a little bit of a puzzle. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure right off the bat, but I would think, you know, just trying to use debt in a very smart and strategic way um you know it's going to be more difficult to do whatever you may be envisioning with higher yield environments higher interest rate environments i think um as you know capital and money becomes more and more expensive the higher the interest rates go so uh why don't you walk me through it yeah yeah so it's it's a little bit of a stretch of the concept here but it's not so different than things we've talked about in the past recall the episode where we did can we view debt repayment as an asset class, right? We, we conceptualized this idea that whatever interest rate your debt is, if you put money towards paying off that debt, then you could 
you know, do some mental exercise and basically rationalize like, oh, my return on investment is the interest rate on my debt, right? I'm saving that much interest. It's no different than going and finding a bank account that yields a certain interest rate and earning that in interest. So what I meant by strategic debt is, let's say you have an open line of credit that you have debt taken out of, or maybe you have a home equity line of credit, or maybe you have a life insurance policy loan. Remember that another few cents we talked about where the person confronted me about their whole life policy they inherited? Yep. Um, so let's say you have a debt on something. Well, you and you have cash, right? The whole point of these episodes we're talking about is like you have cash and you're wondering, can I put it in something that's high yield? Well, one thing you could consider is if you have debt that you have access to in the form of some line of credit, if you will, and you're currently paying interest on that because you have an outstanding debt on that line of credit, consider throwing some cash back into it, right? You save on the interest rate of whatever it is. And given this high rate environment, I wouldn't be surprised if it's perhaps equal to or even greater than any of the options we've just talked about. And in theory, it should still be liquid, right? It's a line of credit after all. So it's not like you're tying it up. I mean, you may have some type of option at your disposal. Maybe you have a home and maybe you have a home equity line of credit on it. You know, consider paying some of that down. And uh, still having that home equity line of credit open should you need to tap into it again. But just look at your interest rate and ask yourself, honestly, like, am I better saving interest on this versus putting in a high yield account? Something to consider. I wouldn't use this as your emergency fund, per se. I think that's better suited to other options like high yield savings. But it's just another thing to consider in terms of where you could uh, deploy cash if you're looking for something higher yield. View that interest rate on the debt as a high yield equivalent. It, so. I mean, very often it is the highest yield that you're going to find, uh, given what a lot of people are charged in lines of credit, HELOCs, loans, and especially credit cards, Yeah, uh, you know, anywhere from, you know, seven, eight percent and the credit cards are 30 plus percent. So you have enormous returns on those. And again, hearkening back to many episodes we've talked through when you pay off, uh, that debt, that, uh, line of credit, whatever it may be, you then have, uh, that freed up cash flow that can then begin funding many other things in your financial life. Yeah, I mean, I, I just did a quick Google search here, taking this with a grain of salt because it's just what I'm seeing at face value. I typed in current HELOC rates, home equity line of credit rates. And according to US Bank, home equity loan rates and HELOC, as of November 6, 2023, the variable rate for home equity lines of credit ranged from 8.95% to 13.1%. So if you have a, a home equity line of credit open and you have debt on that, might not be a bad place to start paying off some of that debt. I know that would be my focus. <laughs> yeah, getting a pretty good yield on that interest you would avoid. Plus, in theory, you should still have some of that liquidity available. You could always tap back into it if you need it. Uh, but that's just another option to consider. I guess that's a bonus mention. <laughs> anyway, closing thoughts. Again, review part one where we talked about high yield savings, CDs, and money market accounts. And keep in mind what the purpose of your cash is trying to serve. Is it an emergency fund? Is it some type of fixed time horizon with a funding goal? And just ask yourself, you know, what makes sense for your situation? Think about the pros and cons we talked about. Don't tie up money unnecessarily to the point where it would cause financial stress to your life or stress you out. But also don't leave options on the table. If there is something that could really benefit you, uh, consider it, look into it and see if it would be a good fit for your situation. Yeah, that sounds great. To everyone listening, I want to suggest again, if you have your emergency fund in a basic savings account, take a look at uh, 
what you earned in interest this past month. You know, maybe it was a couple of cents, maybe it was 10 cents, 50 cents, whatever it might be. And do some really quick math, just a couple of minutes, and compare that to what you what you might earn in a high yield account earning, you know, four and a half percent, let's say. And I'd be surprised if, like me, you don't find that you're going to earn the entirety in one month that you had earned in the last decade in your bank account. <laughs> that was an amazing example. It's worth the move. <laughs> Another public service announcement. Yes, definitely look into these options and, and see if there's, if there's money that you're leaving on the table. Don't hesitate. You know, don't, don't wait to take action. Take that first step. I think you'll find it's easy once you get it going. It's easy to, to, to push these things through to completion. Yeah, that was great. Danny, thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in for part one and part two of High Yield Options. Hope you got something out of this and we will see you next week. All opinions expressed in this program are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions or financial advice. Always remember that investing involves risk and the possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a qualified professional before making any important financial decisions.